On today's episode of the Keto Camp Podcast, we bring on a world-renowned thyroid expert who's going to reveal the number one reason for weight gain, fatigue, hair loss, poor digestion, autoimmune disease, and how it's all linked to your thyroid. Here we go. I know people say, well, these are foods you can eat and these are foods you can't eat if you have a thyroid condition. I think that's allopathic thinking, honestly. I think we have to get back to, if it's whole food in nature, and it's edible, probably intended to be eaten. Now we shouldn't be eating excessive amount. Obviously we want to eat the cleanest versions of those things, but we had this discussion of, well, these are goitrogenic foods, so you can't eat these from the, you know, the carnivore community saying that plant-based foods are all toxic to the system. I don't believe any of that nonsense. I just don't. I think eating whole foods is where most of us should stay. If you want to eat plant-based foods, eat them. If you, and you, if your body tolerates them, that's great. If you want to be ketogenic, I think that's awesome. If you want to be carnivore and you feel and function well, that's great. I don't really care, but I think it should be whole food based. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, the host of the Keto Camp Podcast. Thank you so much for pressing play today. Today's episode is with Dr. Eric Balkovich, who flew down to Miami to record an amazing podcast with me here in my studio, all about thyroid health. And some of the topics we get into today are very interesting. I think you're going to love it because we've been told, look, if you, you have a thyroid condition, hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's, you should not practice fasting. You should not do keto. You should not do carnivore. But is that necessarily true? We see that free T3 might lower when you do these ancient healing strategies that we talk about. But is that a bad thing? Dr. Eric is going to make the case that no, it's not necessarily bad. It actually could be useful to use keto fasting carnivore for a slow thyroid when it's done the right way. So we'll talk about that. You know, the thyroid is the canary in the coal mine. It's usually the first thing to show up in terms of symptom when there's an upstream cause. And I asked Dr. Eric, what are the top things that destroy thyroid function? And he'll get into that. Thoughts, hypoxia, toxins, environmental toxins, processed foods, trauma, and different processes that are really interesting. One of the things that I learned today that I was not really aware of, and I thought I had a pretty good understanding on thyroid health, Dr. Eric is on a whole new level. And one of the things I learned from him is T2. And there's two forms of T2. Now, we've heard of T4, T3, reverse T3, free T4, et cetera. But it turns out there's also a T2, and there's two forms of it, an active and inactive form. And we'll talk about this T2 as a, as a backup plan, kind of like a gas generator. We'll discuss the role 
of the cell danger response. This is very important because when that thyroid and that the mitochondria in the thyroid are in a cell danger response, it's going to lower energy production. We'll discuss Hashimoto's and how you could actually reverse it. We'll discuss some of the science behind testing your thyroid and why it's in the stone age of testing when it comes to conventional testing and how TSH alone doesn't really mean much. We want a full picture and he'll explain the full picture and how it works and some of the ranges on your thyroid test that you want to hit. We'll discuss the HPA access signaling as it relates to the thyroid, that's hypothalamus pituitary adrenal access, leptin, the role of leptin as well, and a lot more. You're going to love this conversation. He is a, a brilliant guy. You want to get his book after you listen to the conversation. It's called The Thyroid Debacle. He also has a great podcast called Thyroid Answer Podcast, which I was a guest on recently. So before I bring him on, I do want to acknowledge today's Apple Podcast rating and review of the day. This is a five-star review from BB Wellness titled, Love, Love Your Content, But Please Change the Entry and Exit Music to Your Podcast. There are much louder than the rest of your content, and especially the exit is so disruptive when you listen to it while relaxing, but your content is incredible. Hate to sound petty, but your content is fabulous. Thank you. No, I appreciate the feedback, and there's some major changes coming to the Keto Camp Podcast. We will have a new podcast cover, a new actual podcast name and a new uh, intro and outro. So BB Wellness, your wish is going to be granted <laughs> very soon. And thank you for listening to the show and taking the time to leave the rating and review. Hey, if you have not left the show a rating and review, please do so. We're, we're on our way to a thousand ratings and reviews. We're over the 800 mark and I'd love your help with that. Maybe I'll read your review in the next episode as well. Just a reminder, if you haven't subscribed to my Keto Recipe of the Week program, it is available. It is $9.97 a month. Cancel anytime and you'll get a brand new fat-burning, delicious, uh, protein-focused Keto Recipe of the Week delivered to your inbox and over 400 bucks in free bonuses. So head over to KetoCampRecipes.com if you want to learn more about that. All right, let's have a fun conversation all about thyroid health with the man, Dr. Eric Balkovich. Dr. Eric Balkovich received his doctorate of chiropractic from Palmer College of Chiropractic, Davenport, Iowa in 1995. I was just a child. <laughs> and he's been in practice since 1996. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Medical Technology. He's board certified in integrative medicine and cert certified functional medicine practitioner and a certified nutrition specialist. He spends hundreds of hours every year advancing his knowledge based on functional medicine, thyroid physiology, functional neurology, immune system function, hormone function, and regenerative therapies. Here's Dr. Eric. So many people are struggling with a lot of symptoms. Weight loss resistance, despite changing their diet, despite exercising, if they even have the energy to exercise, despite taking supplements and taking a whole bunch of supplements, a lot of people are doing that. Chronic fatigue, cyclical fatigue, hair loss, poor digestion, high blood sugar levels, which we know lead to insulin resistance, diabetes, which leads to a whole host of other problems. And of course, autoimmune disease, which is on the rise. So doc, you are a world leading authority on thyroid health. And I want to know what's the connection between all those symptoms that I mentioned and ones I have not mentioned in thyroid health. The... Easy answer is all those conditions are associated with some level of a 
adaptive change in thyroid physiology. Now, when we think about thyroid dysfunction, most people are thinking about the gland first, like the gland becomes dysfunctional and it could be related to all those things. And I don't think that's the case in most cases. I think what happens for most people is there's some type of excessive cell stress response. When our cells perceive stress or danger, they shift their physiology from primarily manufacturing mode to cell defense mode. And the adaptive response of the cell is to slow down that metabolism, ramp up defense, and the amount of T3 inside the cell helps regulate that cell defense mode. So I would say anybody with a, with a chronic health issue has some level of thyroid dysfunction going on, or I should say thyroid allostasis going on, meaning thyroid hormone is regulating differently than we typically like it to regulate, um, but I don't think it's broken at the beginning. By the time somebody is officially diagnosed with hypothyroidism, for sure, they have a full-blown glandular issue, but I'd say the vast majority of people who have any of those conditions that you talked about have a level of tissue hypothyroidism that's an adaptive response. And that does not mean that we should rush in with medications and treat these people. That's exactly what we probably shouldn't do, but often that's the case of what's being done. By the time they're diagnosed with something like hypothyroidism, a slow thyroid, what's the average length of time between people having symptoms related to the thyroid until the blood uh, levels change and then they're diagnosed with that? What's the average time that happens? I, I think, I don't know that we, we know exactly, but because it depends on the individual. I've seen cases where somebody has had really no real signs and symptoms and then has an acute situation go on. And now all of a sudden they have thyroiditis going. I mean, they have a pretty significant case of thyroiditis or no symptoms that they were aware of. But I, th I think it's a thing that takes time. What we do know, at least the literature shows, is that by the time somebody is actually officially diagnosed with primary hypothyroidism, which is where the gland can't make enough anymore, they've lost close to 90% of the function of their gland. So I would say most people are cruising through life for probably more than months, most people it's years before the gland finally is damaged enough where they, they officially need prescription medication. You, you just said when they're diagnosed with hypothyroidism, they've lost about 90% of that's that. What the that's what the literature says. 90%. Yeah. So, so unlike the, the liver is one of the few organs that could regenerate back to 100%, even if you've lost, I believe, up to 75% of the liver, it could regenerate back to 100% function. What about the thyroid? Well, I think the literature would tell you it can't happen, that once you're thy on thyroid medication, you're going to be on it forever. So that it cannot happen is what you said. The literature will say that it cannot or it can. The literature would tell you that once you're on, or with the people in the, in the, from an allopathic perspective, most endocrinologists would tell you the thyroid gland's typically not going to recover. Not going to. Okay. Right? I just wanted to make clear that's what you said. Um, yeah. However, I don't think that's true. Mm. I think for, the, for a huge percentage of people, they're on thyroid medication long before they should have been put on it, and that's a problem. But for people that have been on it, probably prescribed it appropriately, once they really meet the criteria for prescription, I see these people able to reduce their medications, have it work better. And for a lot of those patients, I've, I have patients probably at least 
every week who are fin or coming off their last drop down dose of medication. Some of these people have had hypothyroidism for weeks, some for years, some for decades, and somehow they don't need it anymore. So something's working. Yeah. I even have a, a client who had a thyroidectomy, complete thyroidectomy. And as we worked together over the course of about a year and a half, she needed less and less thyroid medication. And we were like, you need less, you need less, you need less. And so I don't prescribe, but I would keep sending her doctor back to her physicians. And um, eventually she was done taking medication and they sent her back to the person who did the thyroidectomy to say, hey, you need to check her out. And they're like, I think over half of her thyroid gland had grown back. Wow. So they were like, we're going to take it back out again. She's like, that, that's what they said? Yeah. Oh my um, gosh. So she's like, why would I do that? They're like, well, she had hurdle cells before, which is a potential indication of thyroid cancer. Potential. Not truly, okay. potential. Um, but they're like, because you could develop cancer. She goes, but I might not. It seems to be working. I feel good. I function good. I don't need medication. Why would I cut it back out? So I think the body's got amazing capacity. We believe, at least from what I've read in the literature, that the thyroid gland, it takes about eight years for a thyroid gland to turn over. So is there a potential? Sure, I think there is. The problem is most people, once they're put on thyroid medication, never reduce the dose or never address what caused the thyroiditis to begin with. So we're never giving it a chance. And we're trying to suppress with medication, TSH into a certain window. And if you're suppressing, if you're keeping TSH in that suppressed window, there's no drive for the thyroid gland to ever recover, right? Because what generates a thyroid gland to make more thyroid hormone is TSH that turns the process on. So if you're giving them a day's worth of thyroid hormone replacement, the gland has no need to work. So it, yeah, it's more likely it's going to stay uh, dysfunctional or atrophied yeah. or however you want to Makes say. Makes sense, that negative feedback loop. Right. I want to get into some of the causes why we you see these the thyroid stop functioning or not working as optimal as it should. But before we get to that, let's go back to what you said at the beginning. You, you spoke about this uh, the cell danger response. Mm -hmm. That's um, really fascinating, this, this CDR response that happens. And I want you to explain why this is a very smart way for the innate intelligence to lower energy to deal with that threat being the stress, mental, emotional, chemical, physical. And what exactly is happening at that mitochondria slash thyroid level when there's too much stress for the cell to adapt to? Yeah, so for the cell, what it really is trying to do when in a non-threatened state is bring nutrients into the cell, oxygen, you know, minerals, uh, amino acids, right? We want to bring all the stuff in and make it into all this cool stuff, right? We want to bring glucose in and make it into energy. We want to bring amino acids in and make them into peptides and proteins, the building blocks. We want to make cell membranes, right? And so there's a lot of building that we want to do inside the cell. But once the cell perceives danger, and that's usually like a drop in energy, and that's what we talk, that's what's talked about in the cell danger response, that the mitochondria, these sensing organisms, at least based on where we're at now, we think that that's the case. Like yeah. all, every time we think we have it figured out, yeah. we learn later that we're wrong. But when the cell senses danger, 
there's a, or there's a drop in energy, it says, hey, there may be a threat here, a toxin, an organism, a virus, a, something that's a threat. And so what the cell does is it wants to stiffen the cell membrane, reduce the amount of transport of things in, but also reduce the amount of transport of things out. So we want to trap whatever's in there. And then the cell wants to adaptively turn down the manufacturing process, right? Because if I take a bunch of amino acids and I make them into peptides, those, that organism could use those peptides for its benefit yeah, too, yeah. right? It can hijack those. So it reduces that. It decreases oxygen coming into the cell. Why would you do that? Well, then I create this hypoxic state, right? The organism may not be have a chance to flourish. I create less building material. And then the other thing we need to do is the this kind of engine inside the cell is the mitochondria. And that's where we take we take food energy and we convert that into cellular energy. And thyroid hormone drives all those other manufacturing and building processes we talked about. And thyroid hormone drives helps drive mitochondrial function. And so if we continue to drive mitochondrial function, we have the potential to create more cell damage potentially because what a cell wants to do when there's a threat is increase free radicals. These are things that inside the cell that can be used to kill things, right? So we want to go around the cell. We use this term autophagy, like self-eating. And so we, if we stiffen the cell membrane, now the cell can start cleaning up the debris. We've got free radicals. If we find this thing, we can swallow it, use those free radicals to kill it. But the problem is when we have those free radicals, then we need something to balance those free radicals out. We call those antioxidants. And the cell has a certain capacity to make antioxidants. But we have this thing called the mitochondria. When, when it's running at full tilt, when we're in a low stress state, we take food energy converted into cell energy. That also create, creates free radicals. And when we're in that non-stress state, the exhaust or free radicals that are made by the mitochondria are balanced out by what the cell can make as antioxidants. But if we have the stress response going on and we have free radicals that are generated by the, the, the stress mechanisms in the cell and we have decreased nutrients being brought into the cell to make more of those antioxidants and we have the mitochondria at full tilt making free radicals, we have an excessive load of free radicals, a limited amount of antioxidants, and that would cause oxidative stress and damage to the cell and essentially kill the cell. So what does the body do? It adaptively down-regulates the mitochondria so it doesn't have that same capacity. We don't feel as great, right? We, we feel more tired, more fatigued, and we look at that as a problem, but really that's the body's adaptive response. And Dr. Robert Navio is the guy who took this kind of wrote this paper on the cell danger response and pulled all of these cell danger uh, hypotheses together and said, hey, there's all the things that are going on in here. And part of every step of what he outlines in that paper, the eight steps of the cell danger response, you know, I've, I've spoken about this. I've talked about this in my book. Thyroid hormone influence is either directly or in indirectly every step of it. So by down-regulating the amount of T3 inside the cell, that allows for the cell danger response to actually kick in. Mm. You explained that so well. I mean, this is the beauty of metabolism, right? So the cell danger response, Dr. Robert Navio calls it the wartime metabolism. We want to get back to this peacetime metabolism. 
At least that's what we know right now. It could change right. in a year. It could change in five years. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so really, it's so fascinating. Uh, Alvin Toffler used to say, the illiterate of the 21st century are not those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. So yeah. you're constantly unlearning and relearning, and I'm doing the same thing. And it's, and it's fun space to be in. Hey, when was the last time you bit into a juicy burger or a perfectly cooked steak and thought to yourself, this is the best thing I've ever tasted. If it's been a while, it's probably because most meat products are conventionally raised, which not only affects the flavor profile, but significantly diminishes the beneficial nutrients and minerals. And believe it or not, even products that are labeled as grass-fed or ethically raised to make you think they're high quality, are often finished on grain or in factory farms, which is why I am so excited to share something with you today that will not only help you avoid the hormones, antibiotics, and pesticide residues that diminish the taste of conventionally raised meat, but could also save you nearly $1,000 over the next year on your grocery bill. And the best part, this may be the best tasting thing you've had in a long time. So what the heck am I talking about? I'm talking about Wild Pastures Meat Delivery. They provide the highest quality meats from small, regenerative, family-run farms here in the United States that prioritize sustainability and animal welfare. Their beef is 100% grass-fed. Their pork and poultry are pasture-raised, something you won't find anywhere in the grocery store, resulting in meats that are not only healthier for you, but also better for the environment. One of the reasons why me and my fiance Natasha loves wild pastures is that we can opt out out of supporting harmful conventional farming practices and instead support small family-run farms without spending a fortune. And the convenience doesn't stop there. They offer delivery straight to your door so you can enjoy delicious, high-quality meats without even leaving your house. No matter where you are in the lower 48 states, Wild Pastures has got you covered. Not only is this the most convenient way to get your meat products, but Wild Pasture meats are better for you nutritionally and they're higher in the total nutrients, phytonutrients, antioxidants, key fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, proteins, and amino acids. And today, for keto campers, for a limited time, you can get 20% off every box plus free shipping for life and... $15 off your first box. This is a crazy deal and I hope you take advantage of it. So make the switch to Wild Pastures today and save nearly $1,000 on your grocery bill while feeling healthier and enjoying the best tasting meats of your life. All you need to do is go to the link in the podcast notes down below. Everything is already applied. All you got to do is click that link, customize your order, and you'll have some delicious, healthy tasting meats very soon. Head to the podcast notes down below, click the link, enjoy your wild pastures. Okay, let's get right back to this episode. So what are the top five things, Doc, that contribute to a thyroid dysfunctioning, to the destruction of our thyroid gland? What are the top five things destroying it? The gland itself or the or what's driving the decreased conversion of T4 to T3 in the cells and tissue, the cellular hypothyroidism or the glandular hypothyroidism? Let's start with cellular and then let's move to the, to the glandular. And it's kind of a trick question, I pose, because it's really the same stuff, <laughs> there you go. right? So we think about organisms, right? Toxins, thought, 
has a huge role. I think bigger mm. role than most people give it consideration. I agree. Hypoxia, which is a decreased amount of oxygen into the system. F you know, the foods we eat ultimately and what they bring into the system create a level and that could, you could bring that into the organisms or the toxins. But those are really the big things, thought, trauma, toxins, organisms, and hypoxia. So let's hit up each one of these. Let's, let's start with food. What are some of the foods you know? I know that it's, everybody's very different biochemical individual needs and uh, there's keto, carnivore, et cetera. We're not going to get into that per se right now, but foods. What are foods that you've seen support the thyroid versus foods you've seen actually not really work well for the thyroid? I'll give you the easy answer. Uh, whole foods, good for the body overall and for the thyroid gland and processed foods. Not good. Not good. Okay. That's, that's it. With the whole foods, yeah. what are your favorite ones that support thyroid? So I don't look at it. I, I think when you're thinking along the lines, if you're eating whole food-based foods and you have a, a, a variety of foods, things that have proteins or have amino acids so you can, you can develop the base of the building blocks for thyroid hormones, that's important. But there isn't necessarily one food that I would say in general, like this one is the best. I think we just need to focus on eating more variety of whole foods. So whether that be animal-based foods, some plant-based foods, there's a story of, of goitrogenic foods and there's a problematic and you got to avoid those. And I think we've, that's been disproven in the literature. So I don't, I know people say, well, these are foods you can eat and these are foods you can't eat if you have a thyroid condition. I think that's allopathic thinking, honestly. I think we have to get back to if it's, whole food in nature, it's edible, probably intended to be eaten. Now we shouldn't be eating excessive amount. Obviously we want to eat the cleanest versions of those things, but we had this discussion of, well, these are goitrogenic foods. So you can't eat these from the, you know, the carnivore community saying that plant-based foods are all toxic to the system. I don't believe any of that nonsense. I just don't. I think eating whole foods is where most of us should stay. If you want to eat plant-based foods, Eat them if you and you if your body tolerates them. That's great. If you want to be ketogenic, I think that's awesome. If you want to be carnivore and you feel and function well, that's great. I don't really care, but I think it should be whole food based. I love it. No, that makes it easy for for people as well. You don't have to really worry about any dietary dogma or anything like that. But I think we do a disservice to people when we start having the wars within our own community about which whole food diet is better. Well. Listen, if you had some GI issues going on and you got gas and bloating and stuff and you got a bunch of immune issues and you switched to carnivore and you did better, who am I to say that that's an unhealthy diet? If it changed your, your physiology temporarily and you feel and function better, that's awesome, right? Do I think people benefit from doing a ketogenic diet? Sure. Is it what you should do forever? I don't know, Right. I'm sure you've been through all different types of diet and some things you feel good on, some things you feel don't. But I think the biggest challenge in our community is, is that we have these food religion wars and we're, we've circled the wagons and we're shooting in and we're not paying attention that the biggest problem out there is the big agriculture and the big pesticides, all these things we're spraying and putting on the yeah, food, big food big and pharma. how we process it versus, hey, eat a healthy whole food diet, start there. Because then people are like, well, you can't eat plants. They're all bad. Come on, right? Like, 
I, I don't think that that's the case. All meat's bad. I mean, we've already been down this line, right? All fat's bad, right? Fat's bad. Mm -hmm. causes cardiovascular disease. Yeah. You know, so I think that's the place that most people should be is like, am I spending 85% of my time eating whole food-based meals? If you are, you're probably going to be in better shape and don't, that way we don't create the food fear that leads to the emotional stress and trauma that drives mm. a cell danger response. Yeah, so true. Well said. You mentioned toxins and you mentioned glyphosate. We could throw that into the category of toxins to avoid. What other ones out there? I've seen some research, Eric, about um, mercury, mercury having an affinity for that thyroid gland and knocking off the selenium receptors or knocking off selenium off the receptor sites. So what are your thoughts on, on mercury and the thyroid? I know there's a lot of discussion about the toxins themselves creating much of the damage. And there's a lot of people uh, that put a lot of, they put a lot behind the idea that toxins are the thing. I don't think that's the case necessarily for the vast majority of people. I think I've been doing this 28, 29 years at this point. I know I, I look like I've yeah. only been doing it. You've 80. been doing it since you were zero, right. one years old. <laughs> yeah, <What>? right. <laughs> but the issue is, I don't find it in the vast majority of people to be as big of a problem. And the reason I say that is that I don't spend that much time testing people for heavy metal toxicity. I don't think a lot of the ways we test for it are extremely valid. Um, there's a gentleman named Stephen Gen Genis. Do you know Stephen? No. Uh, he's thought to be one of the kind of real smart guys on uh, heavy metal toxicity. And in conversations with him, I believe that their toxins can be an issue. I believe that it can be a problem. But I think for the most part, for most people, if we reduce all the other stressors that are going on in somebody's that are affecting their physiology, we have systems in place to get rid of a bunch of this stuff, natural systems in place. And so I think I have not in 28, 29 years had to spend much time trying to detoxify people with heavy metals. Like, do they have mercury issues? I've done a lot of tests. I've done a lot of uh, Cyrex-based testing for uh, immune reactivity to these things. And I just don't think it's as big an issue as a lot of people make it out to be. Any other metals that you see a threat as a threat to the thyroid specifically? I think we can have toxicity from a number of different substances, but I don't see, and I, I don't see any one thing being something that's huge out there. Part of my process with my patients is to definitely reduce the exposure to toxins to the best of their ability. And we do some testing for those things. I don't think for most people, the thyroid gland and the damage that's happening at the thyroid gland is rooted in a lot of heavy metal toxicity. And I think there's a lot of people that would argue against me. Yeah, maybe. I would be one of them. Yeah. Yeah, I'm more on the other, other side. Yeah. And you could be. I mean, but I just, I've been doing this 28 years. Yeah, and, no. I don't, and I don't have to, I don't spend that much time trying to do it. And I see people recover and come off medications all the time. So I just don't put as much, uh, it's not that I don't test for it, but I also am not a medical physician to be able to do provoked and unprovoked testing appropriately. And I, I, from what I've learned that you need different medications to try and provoke different 
metals, metals out of yeah. the system. And so because I don't do those types of tests, you might say, hey, I do those tests and I, I see a lot of toxicity in people and we have, to, we have to do different strategies to detoxify them. I just haven't seen it in my population base and haven't had to do it and still people get well. So I guess I'm in that camp where if I'm reducing the load on them, I would expect that almost anybody in today's environment has a level of toxicity of stuff because we're surrounded by it. Yeah. But my greater concern isn't, are they exposed to it per se, but is it driving their immune system? Is that what their immune system is reacting to? And when I run a lot of testing, antibody-based testing, immune-based testing, I just don't see it. But I do think... Anybody who's overweight and hold on to a lot of fat mm. and has compromised detoxification pathways has the potential to have a lot of stuff being stored in their fat. And as they lose body weight and they sweat and they exercise and they do all the things I need them to do anyway, my belief is that they're probably going to start to clear those things. Maybe not as quickly as you might try and do if you were trying to treat them, but I'm not a huge fan of trying to liberate a bunch of heavy metals and toxins in somebody from somebody's fat faster than their body's able to do it because we have, they may not be in a position where they can really clear that appropriately. Yep. And I get concerned that, you know, what, if the body was able to get rid of it in the first place, maybe it wouldn't be all going into storage. It would probably do the best job it could to get rid of it. So my focus is trying to get, get that stuff out as the best we can. It's fair. To, it's fair. To treat, supporting the detoxification yeah, pathway. It's fair. Yeah, I have a question. You know, Keto Camp is my company and we love keto. We look mm -hmm. at it more as a metabolic process than an actual diet. A lot of people, and you actually asked me this question I'm gonna, on your podcast, the Fatoroid Answers podcast. Everybody go subscribe to that. I'm going to ask you the same question. A lot of people believe that if you have hypothyroidism, you should stay away from a low-carb ketogenic diet. You should stay away from fasting. It is dangerous for somebody with a slowed hypothyroidism. Where is the truth there? Do you work with patients who have hypothyroidism and use keto and fasting at all? Yeah. So which one do you want to start with? Let's start with keto. Okay. So the argument from a keto perspective, I think in people that work with hypothyroid clients is that there's some literature that says if people on a ketogenic diet have a lower T3 state, that if you go ketogenic, you're going to lower your T3 and we're trying to raise your T3. So why would you do that? There might be another argument that, that if you have this cellular hypothyroidism and you have downregulation of the mitochondria that you can't burn fats efficiently. It's never black and white. It's never like the whole thing is turned off. That's number one. So I don't think you, you can't do it. Two, you may already have challenges with glucose regulation as part of that cell stress response. And three, the whole nonsense that people who go on a ketogenic diet have a lower T3 state, and that's problematic, I think is crazy. Because if we think about it, we think we're talking about calories and we're talking about energy, right? If I can get four calories from carbs and I can get nine calories from fats. Do I need to run the engine as hot if I'm using fats? It's true. No, you don't. Right? Yeah. So a lower T3 state may be appropriate. 
And I make this argument all the time when people talk about optimal ranges versus lab ranges. And they say, well, T3 needs to be in the op, this is the optimal range. Based on what? Based on who? Who mm. made that up? Mm. Right? And the, especially the people that prescribe T3 medications are saying, hey, it needs to be three, it needs to be four, there needs to be five, it needs to be whatever. I don't know where they found this, this stuff out other than, hey, personally or with their clients, they have to dose them up that high so that they feel somewhat good. I think some of that stuff is nonsense. Anytime we're looking at labs, we have to interpret them. So if you were fasting, you might have a lower T3 because you're fasting. So that's appropriate maybe for somebody who's fasting. Does that mean that's bad if you have a thyroid condition going on? No, right? We have to interpret. We just can't read. So I, from a ketogenic standpoint, I definitely have patients used keto diets. I've had patients use carnivore diets. I've had patients use, I'm not maybe the biggest fan of a vegan <laughs> diet mm, yeah. or, or veg. But at the end of the day, if you're a vegan, I work with a bunch of vegans and vegetarians and I tell them right at the start, like that's like, I'm a carnivore at heart. I mean, I eat everything, but I'm a carnivore at heart. So I'm not the most skilled at giving you the best vegan version of what's going on. But if they feel and function well, and they're truly a really good vegan or vegetarian, I don't care as long as we're getting you better. But if somebody's doing keto and I don't think they're doing it well, or I think it's problematic for what we're trying to accomplish, I will let them know. But I really don't have that big of a dog in the fight. But I think all of these, all the whole food-based diets have the ability to change our physiology anytime we make a switch or a change to them where we can maybe feel not so great for a short period of time. And then say, wow, I feel different. And I think a big part of that is it, it changes the, bi the, the biome, which can have a huge impact on people. Um, so so you, you, what you're saying is when you change your diet, change your foods, changes your gut microbiome, the diversity, which is the people are experiencing that benefit is what you're saying. Yeah, because the, the bacteria that we have creates a big shift in inflammation, non-inflammation, yeah. right? Or micronutrients broken down, micronutrients absorbed, how we detox things, like it makes a difference. So anytime you have a change in diet, there's going to be a change in the environment. And sometimes that's good, at least for the short run. Yeah, sometimes for the it's better short for run. The long, sometimes it's better some, for some people, you know, they're like, hey, I've been doing this five years. I've been doing this carnivore thing and I feel great. Okay. I don't know what the long run is. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't know what the long-term effect of that is. It, but it will create change. But if it created a positive change for that individual, awesome. But I almost always try and get somebody back to a well-rounded whole food-based diet, right? Well-rounded is the key word there, whole foods diet. You know, I just did 90 days of carnivore mm -hmm. as, a, as a just experiment. I usually do carnivore 30 days, 40 days, a couple times a year. I've been doing that for many, many years, but I decided to do 90 days. And I did lab test day one, uh, full panel on LabCorp, uh, I did a stool test day one, mm -hmm. and I put on a continuous glucose monitor day one. And then I just did carnivore for 90 days. And then on day 90, right before I broke it, same lab test, same stool test, and then looking at my CGM numbers. But one of the more, more fascinating numbers that came out was my stool test. When I did my stool test on day one, I got the results back like three weeks already being into carnivore because it took some time to get the results. Everything on the report said the recommendations were to eat more vegetables and stay away from meat, stay away from keto, 
eat these polyphenols, eat this fiber. We need, we need to increase your diversity. This is before carnivore. This is the day one test of carnivore. Right. So this is before. Correct. This is no I'm going to go and do complete opposite of what right. this test is telling me to do. Yeah. yeah. So to your point, this is right before I started carnivore. It's telling me not to do carnivore mm -hmm. to increase diversity in my gut because my diversity score was okay. And in order to improve it, they're telling me based off of their, their metrics and their studies and their patient population to eat these foods. And they were not carnivore foods. Mm -hmm. So obviously I didn't listen to that because I'm going to do carnivore. So then on day 90, I did the same test and my diversity actually improved. Yeah. Doing the opposite of what that test told me to do. You would, most people would think you would need the fiber. You would need the prebiotics. You need these things to increase diversity in your gut. But to your point, I just went full on to carnivore, stressed my gut short term and it created that diversity, which is exactly what you were saying. Yeah. I don't think we know enough about what goes on in the gut. Yet. I don't think we do either. No. So even when we run the stool test, there's people that say the stool tests are good. Some people say they're useless. Some people... I think the food sensitivity ones are more useless than helpful personally. Yeah. I think the most important thing to me when we look at a, at a stool test is not necessarily the bacteria, the commensal bacteria that are on there. Uh, it's interesting, but I don't run it for that. Really, what I would like to see is all the other metrics, the level of inflammation that's on there. Maybe what's our short chain fatty acids look like? What's our biomarkers look like? What's our fat malabsorption look like? Yeah, those are, those are important values. Right? What so, about the diversity? Is the diversity score benefit, valuable to you or not? Yeah, I look at it and I, I keep in mind there, okay, let me see what that looks like, right? Do I have more you know, gram positive, gram negative bacteria. How's that relate to my client? How does that make sense for what I'm going on? You know, what I'm looking at. And I think, again, this all comes down to interpretation, right? So as an example, when we look at like Formicides to Bacteroides, right? And they, you'll get some of these tests back. And like, if you have high Formicides, hey, you're, you're leading towards potential obesity, right? And you're overweight. And so you have to interpret that. What does that mean? Well, let me look at my patient. You're lean. So if somebody could be like, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, I'm right. lean. Well, it might make a lot of sense. You're probably not getting sufficient calories and macros into your body. You're not breaking foods down and digesting them well. And maybe that higher level of Formicides is a way that you're holding on to or extracting more calories from your food. So that elevation may be an adaptive change given your certain situation. But if I had the person who's overweight and obese and that was elevated, then we'd say, hey, this might be contributing to part of your problem. So it's not black or white like it's good or it's bad. I think we have to interpret it. What does this tell me in this individual client? And then you look at some of the commensals. Okay, these are commensals, Acromatia municipalia, right? It's low. That's the big hot thing now because everybody's got a probiotic. Yeah. You know, does that mean we jam more of that probiotic into that we give them the, the bacteria and that's going to fix it? Probably not. No. Um, if only it was that easy, right? Doc. Yeah. But I think with these stool tests, what it does is it helps us really interpret our patients a little bit better. And we have to interpret those labs like, hmm, what does this mean? I had a discussion with a clinician. We were looking at pancreatic elastase one. And they said, this is, this is a person who's got chronically low. I was in, you know, coaching a, a person through their client. They're like, this person's chronically low in pancreatic elastase one. And I said, why do you think that is? And they're, they're like, I don't know what I, you know, everybody's put them on these digestive enzymes. I'm like, well, did you look at their blood glucose? 
She's like, well, they're prediabetes. And I'm like, well, what's their insulin? And the insulin was kind of inappropriate for the blood sugar and what's going on. I said, do you ever consider that maybe that low pancreatic elastase one is an adaptive change, not broken physiology. Now it might be, maybe there's estrogen preventing it from being released. Maybe there's a problem at the pancreas where it can't make it. But, you know, an interesting side note is, you know, when the beta cells start to fail, the pancreas can hijack some of the alpha cells that are making pancreatic enzymes and convert them into insulin producing cells. Interesting. So I was like, you know what, maybe the cell stress is creating a glucose resistance it pancreas is doing its best job. We also got this reduced T4 to T3. You need T3 to help make insulin at the pancreas. And now the, those beta cells are starting to fail. And so now the body's going, whoa, we don't need more digestive enzymes to bring in more food that we can't regulate. Maybe we need to use that energy more efficiently to drive insulin to get this stuff out of the bloodstream because it's toxic. But that's interpretation, right? Yeah, no, it, it's interesting thought process though. So all those things, anytime we're looking at any test, we have to interpret, but definitely on those stool-based tests, you look at those and you go, huh, what's the story I got here? And we take that stool test and we look at the rest of their labs, like we were just talking about with the blood sugar and go, yeah, some of these tests are only focused on the bacteria. And we could say, yeah, that's all just dysbiosis. Well, there's all this dysbiosis, maybe because we've lost some of the normal or appropriate immune response. We've lost stomach acid production. We've lost pancreatic enzyme output. We have reduction and maybe a reduction in biophysiology. So of course there's going to be SIBO and whatever else you want to call it going on in the small bowel and in and the large bowel because the, the innate immune response of the GI tract, which is a lot of that is digestively driven, is, is not working well, right? So the reason we have this, instead of blasting people with antimicrobials maybe and antibiotics, we should ask, or antibiotics, probiotics, whatever, is say, how do we lose the innate immune system to begin with? What's driving that issue? And that's where I think these stool tests really can be helpful to say, Oof, you, can, you could treat this with probiotics and, and antimicrobials and antibiotics till the cows come home, but we don't restore stomach acid production bile pancreatic enzyme output and a healthy immune system. It's an exercise in, in futility. Yeah. Well explained. I, I love how you broke that down. If you watch any of my videos on social media, you always see me with glasses on and I always get the question, Hey, why are you wearing those glasses? These are called blue light blocking glasses and I wear them to protect my brain and my focus. You see, we are bombarded with stimulation, especially with junk light from your computer screen, your phone, fluorescent lights, and the brain has to filter that out. These glasses, what they do is they filter out those lights for you so your brain does not have to do the work. I equate this to having a web browser open with 100 tabs. If you had 100 tabs open on your computer, that computer is going to run slow. But if you were able to eliminate 99 of those 100 tabs, and now you just have one tab open, that computer will function better. This is the same thing with your brain. So there's different types of blue light blocking glasses. There are computer glasses that you would wear during the day when working with screens and under artificial light. There are light sensitivity glasses that you would also wear during the day with screens and artificial light. And then you have the blue light blocking glasses, which I wear at night, two to three hours before I go to bed, 
which promotes hormone health, helps your body produce melatonin, and aids in better sleep. My go-to is from Bon Charge. They have the science to back it up. They look super cool. The glasses come in non-prescription, prescription, and reading options. Glasses for every need. Bon Charge also has other amazing products such as low blue light bulbs, red light therapy devices, EMF slash 5G protection, and 100% blackout sleep mask that I take with me when I travel all the time. The greatest thing about them, all backed up by science. They gave Keto Camp Podcast listeners a 15% off coupon code. All you need to do is head over to bondcharge.com slash ketocamp and use the coupon code ketocamp at checkout, no space in between, to get 15% off your entire order. We'll drop that link down below along with the coupon code. Go check them out and let's get back to this episode. I want to ask the question that my audience is probably asking. All right, doc, thyroid is important. But my doctor, every time I do my test each year, he's just testing TSH and he's just saying everything looks fine and I leave the office. What are the labs to order? How do I understand these labs? What are they testing for? So a traditional allopathic physician is typically running what's called a TSH with reflex to free T4. So TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, and a free T4. and they're not bad people, right? This is just what the literature says to run because if TSH is lab high and the recommendations are kind of all over the place, but the general recommendation is people probably shouldn't be prescribed thyroid medication until TSH is above the lab range. Some people say six, some people say 10 and free T4 is below the rat the reference range. So the thyroid gland is no longer making enough thyroid hormone to support the bloodstream and then therefore the tissues. And so if your doctor sees that your TSH is within the lab reference range or even over the reference range, but free T4 is still within the range, they're going to tell you it's fine. And the reason is, is because it's not time yet that the gland is shot and they need to give you thyroid hormone replacement. So they're pretty much waiting for that to happen. Right. So people would say that that's, that's inappropriate care but I don't think it's inappropriate care, but they don't have another tool in the toolbox. That's, that's, the, cha- that's the problem. Right, right. So like if you had cardiovascular disease, but it, you don't need surgery yet, do you want a cardiac surgeon going in there and doing surgery at the beginning no, of every- Absolutely, you right? don't, yeah. So people would say, well, what's the big deal? Because that's what we see, we hear in our space, in the functional space is, well, these silly medical doctors are, are not looking at t- total T3 and free T3 and reverse T3 and antibodies. Well, I, I would argue that most f- medical physicians already know that most cases of primary hypothyroidism are driven by the immune system, that it's thyroiditis driven. I mean, yes, could it be iodine deficiency secondary to uh, some type of maybe toxicity where iodine can't get to the thyroid gland? Sure. But I don't think that's the primary cause. I think most of it's immune driven and I don't think it's the immune system woke up to one day and mm-hmm. said, oh, I don't recognize those thyroid cells anymore. I don't think that's the mechanism. We could talk about that later if you want. But I think most physicians realize it's immune driven disorder. But again, what are you going to do? They're not putting you on cortisone for this. Their thought process is the immune system is out of control. We don't know what's driving it. Nobody's paying me to figure that part out. It could be a host of different things. It's not what I'm trained to do. What I am trained to do 
is tell you when the gland can't make enough thyroid hormone anymore, and then I put you on medication. And there's tons of arguments in the literature about when should we start to prescribe medication because people don't feel good at a TSH of three. They don't feel good at a TSH at five. They don't feel good at, honestly, some people don't feel good and their TSH is 0.46, six, you know, 0.46. But when should we intervene? And I think what should happen in those situations is not happening just because we haven't created a working dialogue between the functional medicine community and the allopathic community, what should really happen is the allopathic physician says, listen, I, those signs and symptoms, the way you look, you probably have a thyroid related condition, but you're not bad enough that I can treat you with medication. It's not appropriate yet. That's when they should re refer to someone say, hey, there's this, there's an integrative or functional medicine practitioner. They work with people who address the, the root causes that's driving it. Why don't you work with them for a bit and see if you can get that under control so maybe we never have to give you a thyroid treatment. Uh, but it's not happening. We, we don't have that bridge built yet in the community. But I don't think a TSH and free T4 test is enough to really assess somebody's thyroid physiology, but it is all that the, doc the medical doctor needs to prescribe T4, which is the primary treatment that you give to somebody who has a gland that's no longer able to make enough thyroid hormone. I, I want to talk more about that. But before we do, so you mentioned the labs that you would recommend, like the labs that you run on your patients. You're going to get a TSH, a free T4, a free T3, a reverse T3, antibodies as well? or Yeah, I'm going to run antibodies. And not because I think the antibodies are like little Pac-Man eating away the thyroid <laughs> gland. I, don't, I think that's not, that was a good story we used to tell, but it's not true. But I run total T4 and total T3. A lot of people don't run them any total T4 and total T3. And I think that's a mistake because there's things that influence how much hormone becomes free. And so if you have normal T4 in the bloodstream, but low free hormones, why would we think putting more in is going to fix that, right? So we need to run total T4. We need to run total T3. We need to run T3 uptake because it gives us a window into the binding globulin status and, and the saturation status. We need to run f both free hormones, free T4 and free T3. I do run reverse T3, but I don't think it, reverse T3 does what our community often thinks it does. Oh, so share more. So I think a lot of people in our community think that T4 is converted to reverse T3 by accident or uh, the body forgot how to convert it to T3 and that that reverse T3 then competes with T3 for the binding sites at the nucleus and at the mitochondria. And that has not been shown to, in the literature to be true at all. It's a nice story. I was taught that story early on, but it's not true. What's happening then? So inside the cell, the cell's like, like your house, right? If the cell wants to increase the manufacturing, it's in a low stress state, it's going to bring T4, T3 into the cell. T3 can get, go right to the nucleus and, get, and support the manufacturing process and make more stuff. T3 can go to the mitochondria and help regulate the mitochondrial function. T4 can come in and then whether T4 or T3 comes in, there's an enzyme, there's enzymes inside the cell that determines what happens to that T4 and T3. If the cell is in manufacturing mode, low stress mode, 
T4 is converted to T3 via deidinase 2. It's the enzyme that converts T4 to T3 inside the cell. And then that T3 goes to the nucleus, goes to the receptors, and mitochondria, hangs out there for a while. I think it's thought, and I, I may be off with the numbers a little bit, but I think the last paper I read was something like the T4 that's converted inside the cell by deidinase 2 hangs out there like eight hours. The T3 that just comes from the bloodstream and comes in hangs out maybe an hour or less. It doesn't hang out there very long. But reverse T3 doesn't have a high affinity for those thyroid receptors. It's got a very low affinity for those receptors. So reverse T3, if the cell's in an inflammatory state, a cell stress state, then T4 can be deactivated by deidinase 3 to reverse T3, and then it can move back out of the cell. What's interesting is T3 can also be deactivated by that same enzyme deidinase 3 to something called T2, which has some backup function at the mitochondria. For most people, I tell them that T2 is like if the power went out in your house, you pull out the gas generator out of the garage, it'll help run stuff, but it's not the primary hormone that does it. T3 is the big driver. So reverse T3 is important, but it's not blocking reverse T3. Reverse T3 is not blocking T3 from doing its work. If we want to talk about anything blocking T3 from doing its job, it's deidinase 3. It's the deactivating enzyme. And why that's important is because people who prescribe T3 think it is, and their thought process is if we just flood the people with T3 and not give them T4, reverse T3 will go down and we'll only have T3. There's a couple flaws with that philosophy. One of those is that if the same enzyme, deidinase 3, is upregulated due to cell stress and cell danger and cell inflammation, reverse T or that deidinase 3 is still activated. It's going to be deactivating T3 mm. into an inactive forms of T2. So, but we're not measuring T2. So some people so people think, I guess, that it doesn't exist or it doesn't happen. But just because we don't measure it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. The cell is still trying to downregulate its metabolism. And then the other issue with that is, and my big concern is that if we're flooding the body with a hormone that the body may not want, is there, is there potential problems doing that, working against what the body's trying to do? And I think it's, it's fairly clear based on signs and symptoms in people who are often over-medicated with both T4 and T3, and in the literature in people who have or over-medicated, that there's, there's potentially some really significant downsides to over-medicating people. And there's more literature in the last few years that talk about hypothyroidism as a protective response versus broken physiology, which has been my argument for the last five or 10 years is, Maybe what we're seeing isn't broken. Maybe this is adaptive and maybe we shouldn't be working against the body's normal physiology, but working with it. Yeah. Well, let me unpack this. So deidinase 3 enzyme, when that's activated through stress, mm -hmm. that's the primary thing that activates it? Inflammation. Inflammation. Yeah. <clears throat> but stress from any area, inflammation, yeah. that deactivates T3, free T3. It deactivates T4 and T3. T4 and T3, and it turns that into T2, it, is what it, you said, as a backup plan? T3 point? gets turned into T2. T3 goes into T2, and that's there as a backup plan. So there's a couple different forms of T2. One of them is active. 
The other ones are not. So the INH three's job is to essentially deactivate essentially deactivate T three and T four. T three and T four. So when that happens, you'll see a high reverse T three on your lab report, and it's not the old thought process that that reverse T3 is there and it's blocking the T3 from getting in. That's not what's happening. But when that reverse T3 is high, it is a problem. Well, what that should tell us is there's something going on here, yeah. right? So what it should tell us is you tell us a couple of different things. And again, this comes back to looking at the rest of the panel and the rest of the labs yeah, and very important. Yeah. But if we look at a reverse T3 and your reverse T3 is high, the first thing I would ask is this is a person on T4 medication. Maybe they're on too much T4 medication. Second thing I would ask is, is this a person with inflammation? And this is an adaptive response. The third thing I would ask is, is this a person with a compromised liver function where they can't clear and get rid of the T3? Remember, liver has a lot of deiodinase 1, and deiodinase 1, its primary job is not converting T4 to T3. Its primary job is metabolizing reverse T3. Hmm. Okay, so too much... T4 medication could be a possibility, too much inflammation, compromised liver. What are the levels of, of a reverse T3 that you would say this is, this is a problem? It's above what I'd like to see. I pretty much use, it's somewhere between 9 and 18. Um, I know some people say it should be under 9. I don't know where they get that number from. I think the range I got and used was from Detis Karazian. Yeah, the legend. Um, and so that's where I did a lot of my, er, my early work was with Detis, and that's the, the value that, I, that was uh, Detis used. I've looked at the literature, and I have never seen anywhere where it should be under like nine, like some people say. And I think the, in an effort to try and drive that down, I think we're doing a disservice to our clients and patients. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. So between nine and 18 is where you want to see it. I, yeah, but I always take it... The full picture. For right. But because what, uh, if somebody, if their value, if they had a reverse T3 under nine, the first thing I would go to do is look like, what's their T4? Do they even have enough T4 to make reverse T3? You know, what's their T4? What's their T3? What's their S, what's their TSH? Right. If they had, cause then if their reverse T3 was like low, if it was 11 and it, I, I say nine to 11 or nine to 18 is the range and their reverse T3 is 11 and they have symptoms, like what the heck's going on here, right? Because I would anticipate an elevated reverse T3. Right. And if it's not elevated and it's an 11, then I'm thinking this is a person who's losing thyroid gland function mm. or is not on enough replacement, yep. right? Or is this a person who's on, oh, maybe this is a person who's on higher doses of T3, that T3 medication their physician's giving them is actually further suppressing their thyroid gland and creating a problem. Makes sense, makes sense. Hashimoto's, what percentage of uh, hypothyroidism is Hashimoto's? I'd say probably. The majority of it. Majority of it, yeah. yeah. A lot of people believe once you're diagnosed with Hashimoto's, just like a lot of people believe once you're diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, uh, you, you're stuck with it for the rest of your life. You just need to manage it and maintain it, and we could do the best we can to help you with that conventional wisdom. Uh, have you worked with patients who've had Hashimoto's and you've helped them reverse it? Um, I think once, so the, the, the easy answer is yes, me included, right? So I had Hashimoto's, I don't have it any longer. 
that I'm aware of. But how do we identify Hashimoto's? We identify Hashimoto's by positive antibodies. And I don't think that's a great way to identify it. What's um, a better way? I, I think we just we can just assume that anybody who's got a thyroid gland issue that has sufficient iodine has Hashimoto's. And the reason I say that is because I've run enough lymphocyte maps now that since that test has come out from Cyrex Labs, and a lot of these people, when you look at their lymphocyte pattern, they're not, they don't have a pattern that they're going to make a lot of antibodies. They're T-cell dominant. They may not make, depending on the pattern, they don't make a lot of antibodies. So it's talked about in the literature that antibodies come and go. Depending on whether they're TH1, TH2 dominant, they may or may not have antibodies. And so you might see somebody who's very symptomatic, has probably has thyroiditis going on, but they're not generating a lot of antibody production. And as you actually start to get them better, they go from zero antibodies to positive antibodies. Mm -hmm. And now they think they're worse. No, that's really their immune system just leveling back out again. Makes um, sense. So some people have like, I've got clients that, you know, they're higher, the tests come back higher than ever imaginable, right? That you can, the labs can't measure them any higher. But I assume that almost every person has thyroiditis going on. Whether you want to call it Hashimoto's or not, doesn't matter to me. It's thyroiditis. Now, is if you're a person who believes that antibodies are like little Pac-Man eating away the gland, then maybe the antibodies are important to you. But the antibodies aren't really that important to me. I know that that's like almost heresy, because <laughs> you, but I run them anyway, because if they do have positive antibodies, I want to see that those antibodies are starting to come down at time. The antibodies are predictive, meaning they could be associated with damage, but it doesn't mean they're going to gobble up the gland. But if we're doing a lot of work and they're feeling and functioning better and they have high antibodies, yeah, I should expe I expect them to come back down. If they, if we're working with them and they don't have any positive antibodies, then I'm watching them anyway to see if they start to pop. Because then uh, to me, if they're feeling and functioning better, their thyroid gland is doing better and their antibodies, they're not jumping to, you know, greater than 600 for TPO antibodies, but maybe they jump up into in the 30 or 40 range. And I, if they're feeling and functioning better, all the labs are coming back into normal range and they pop up. I'm thinking now we're starting to get some better balance to their immune system. Makes sense. Have you ever felt off during your keto journey or carnivore journey? Maybe you experienced a headache, some fatigue, pesky cravings. This can happen when your body loses vital minerals, especially when following a keto diet. Here's what happens. When you lower insulin on keto and carnivore and fasting, you shed excess body weight. This is fantastic because you look lighter and feel lighter. However, you lose essential minerals like potassium, sodium, and magnesium. That's where B-Mineral steps in. It's a full-spectrum, concentrated electrolyte and mineral supplement that gives you all the essentials your body needs. B-Mineral products are the perfect support for anyone doing keto, carnivore, and fasting. It does not break your fast. It does not contain any anti-nutrients, so it is carnivore-friendly. It tastes just like water. It helps to keep your carb cravings at bay and to keep you in this fat-adapted state we love called ketosis. I love this product. I drink it daily. I give it to my dog as well. So give B Minerals a try today for an enhanced keto, carnivore, and fasting experience. Head over to beamminerals.com. 
and use the coupon code AZADI, which is my last name, A-Z-A-D-I, for a special discount. That is beamminerals.com, B-E-A-M-M-I-N-E-R-A-L-S.com. Coupon code AZADI. We'll put that down below in the podcast notes. All right, let's get back to this interview. I have a question regarding the conversion of T4 to T3. From my understanding, every, every cell in the body has a receptor site for T3 hormone. Is that correct? I'd say pretty much, yeah. T3 is the version, the activated version of the thyroid hormone? Yeah. So I think all the hormones, all versions of T4 have some affinity for the receptor, but some, it's extremely low. Okay. T3, T3 has the greatest affinity for that's it. That's the player we want to really harness. Right. The conversion from, from T4 to T3, what role does insulin play with that conversion? And let me, let me preface this mm-hmm. by also saying, because what I've seen, this is the opposite of what we see out there in general, but chronically low levels of insulin, like long-term ketosis, excessive fasting, excessive carnivore years, I tend to see that conversion um, malfunction or I tend to see lower available T3. And I want to know what insulin's role is in helping to make that conversion. I don't think that insulin, from what I've read, has a huge role in the conversion of T4 to T3. If you've read something different, I'd like to know. Yeah. But I think what plays a bigger role is the opposite, right? Which is the thyroid's role in insulin production and insulin signaling and what I would call glucose resistance. So I think glucose or or, um, thyroid hormone plays a massive role in glucose regulation. It plays a huge role in insulin production and insulin signaling. But I don't know per se how much of an impact insulin itself has on it. So you're saying glucose has a role in that conversion, but not necessarily insulin. Is that what you said? Or, or, Or did I hear that incorrectly? Thyroid hormone. When we consume food and we have glucose coming into the, into the system, we need to generate insulin. To generate insulin, you need T3 to help generate the insulin production. As far as does glucose in itself signal more deiodinase 2 production, I don't know that that's as big of a, of a factor. Definitely leptin plays an interesting role. So I think it's, it might be more of an indirect role from a deiodinase 2 perspective. Now, there is signaling that goes on at the hypothalamus and the pituitary axis that would potentially have an indirect role in the upregulation of T4 to T3 conversion, but I don't know that it's a direct role at each individual cell where more insulin triggers it inside the cell, okay? I think it's more a hypothalamic pituitary axis issue with cell signaling. Now, leptin's interesting. And as we start to store more calories in our fat tissue, leptin is thought to increase deiodinase 2 directly at low levels. 
but at higher levels, just like we get leptin resistance at the brain, mm-hmm. we seem to get it at the cell level as well. And whether that's that it's because of the inflammation that goes along with the higher levels of leptin, I don't, I don't know if that's been all worked out yet, but it is interesting that at low levels, leptin signals the brain, hey, stop eating. We got enough. And at low levels, it, leptin signals deiodinase too. But when it's high, not so much. That is interesting. Wow. Okay. So many notes here, Doc. All right. Share with the audience a little bit about your book, uh, the thyroid debacle book you could get. Uh, where can they get the book? Uh, what would they learn reading the book? So the thyroid debacle book is available on Amazon. You know, I guess wherever you buy books, whatever your bookseller is. What the book is about, the book is broken down into into three parts. And the first part is my co-author and, and friend of mine, Dr. Kelly Halderman, who is a previous medical physician, came to the functional medicine because of her own health history and health diagnoses, fellow Hashimoto's uh, person. But I had her write part one because I wanted people to really understand what their medical doctor, you know, what's going on, what's happening at the thyroid gland, what's their medical doctor's way of evaluating and treating, right? Because when I first got into functional medicine, I was more angry at allopathic medicine because I came from allopathic medicine and had my own issues with the allopathic profession. But we needed to give the people a perspective. So Kelly wrote from that perspective, this is how I was trained. This is why we do it the way we do, which kind of people are like, well, yeah, I know that. But I want you to see that the medical physicians aren't, they're not all bad people. This is what they've been taught. And so that's what part one gets into. Part two, in part two, I kind of break down my interpretation of the science, like where that allopathic philosophy goes south and to some degree where the functional medicine perspective goes south. And I back that up with scientific literature. I think there's, I don't know, maybe 400, 500 citations in the book um, because I'm talking from the cellular perspective. No, not many people were talking about it when 10 years ago when I was started on this journey. And I wanted to make sure that, hey, this isn't like, okay, medical profession, bad, functional medicine, doctor, good, right? <laughs> like it's that black and white. Medical physicians are doing what they've taught to do. They have a tool in the toolbox. And in functional medicine, we need to do it a little differently than we're doing it currently. And here's the science that backs up all of the things that we're saying here. And then part three in the book is really digging into what I call the fitness factors. And I'm sure in when you're helping people uh, get healthy, whether it's keto, not keto, whatever, anybody that's coming to see you, there's foundational concepts that everybody has to engage in if you want to be somewhat healthy and well, right? Yep. I don't think we'd argue about most of these things. You have to have good quality sleep pretty consistently. You have to breathe well. You have to be physically fit. And what that means is different, a little bit different for everybody, but you have to have put your body through some physical training on a consistent basis, right? You have to have good mindset, right? And everybody's got a story to tell, right? Everybody's got their, uh, this happened to me. Like, yeah, I know life sucks sometimes get over it. Right. But if you drag all that emotional stress and trauma with you, like a rucksack for the rest of your life, you're in trouble. There's no way anybody's going to get you healthy. 
So your habits, your habitual fitness, like we, so we, we talk about each one of these categories in part three, here's what it is. Here's what you can do naturally to help it before you even need to come see us. So dietary fitness, sleep fitness, physical fitness, emotional fitness, habitual fitness. Like we talk about all these things, environmental fitness, like each of these categories. So somebody can just, all right, did I, am I doing this? No. Okay. Here's a general guideline. Here's Here's other resources, other books, other things that you can turn to, but you got to improve these things. I think too many times people don't, you know, they want to, they want help and they come to you or they come to me and like, Hey, give me the supplements that are going to fix this. And they're already on 20. Like, no, I'm not giving you any more. Are you exercising? No, I'm too tired. Okay. You're too tired to do any. Yeah. Can you walk to the mailbox? Yeah. Good. Do that a couple times a day, and then tomorrow we'll work on a, on the next step, right? Do you eat primarily whole food? No. Well, how about we do that, right? How about we just start working on these foundational concepts? And we all, all of us in this space in functional medicine, we all try to get a hold of somebody through a different window, right? But at the end of the day, all we're really talking about is reduce your toxicity environmentally, emotionally, do some physical activity on a consistent, ongoing basis, have good thoughts running through your mind, you know, just these foundational things. And that's what part three is about. I did have a couple of my peers were like, Hey, where's your treatment protocol? Like, dude, I don't have protocols. Like I treat a person individually. I have principles of how I treat somebody. I get that asked that question. Mm -hmm. What's your key thyroid supplements or replacement strategies. Like, I don't have any. I don't think there's a thyroid glandular that's the best for everybody. I don't, I think that a lot of that's nonsense. Could something be beneficial? Sure. But if you need, if you're deficient in five or six or eight micronutrients, you got a diet and digestive problem, right? So we wrote the book so more people would hopefully do those foundational things first before they come to me. Because otherwise they're paying me for something they could have done on their own. And that way, and so that's what that, that, that third part is all about. And um, the nice thing is, is now when people call me, they're like, all right, I've read the book. I'm doing all the things that you talked about. I still got issues. Great. Now we got to get busy. And I would say the vast majority of them, right off the bat, most of them were over-medicated. Mm. Wow. And, and you're right about the, the foundations, the fundamentals that are called that because they're, they're the fundamentals. You, you can't skip it. If you build or building a house, that foundation needs to be very strong. It doesn't matter how fancy the roof is or the kitchen. The foundation needs to be strong. Otherwise, that house will, be, will fall apart wall by wall. So I love that. Thyroid debacle. The Thyroid Debacle book. We'll put a link for it down below. You also have your podcast, which I was a guest on the Thyroid Answers podcast. So you could subscribe to that. He has a great YouTube channel as well. We'll put that down below. I have a final question for you though. Sure. I ask this question to all my guests. It's, uh, you mentioned supplements. This is a supplement. However, it's different than what you think. I love this supplement. I call it vitamin G because to me, when I take it and when I have my clients take it, there's an immediate benefit. There's um, this oxytocin rush. There's a lowering in inflammation. You just feel good. And I call it vitamin G because it's the practice of gratitude. Mm -hmm. you, you know, this feeling gratitude. So I want to ask you, Eric, what are you grateful for today? What do you have vitamin G for today? 
I'm grateful every day that I have a blessed life. I've got a beautiful wife who stood by me, you know, through, you know, good and bad times, rough times. I've got three great kids. I get the opportunity to fly to Miami and, and, and hang out with you for a few hours and do this podcast. Like I'm grateful every day I'm around. And I, there's days when in my past, when I wasn't grateful, Mm. but man, we're, I'm, I'm so lucky. Everybody's got a story, right? And if you get so caught up in your woe is me story, you don't realize the simple things and the fact that you're here to experience those things is what you, we should be grateful for. When you spend more time being grateful, and that's a part in the book and, and part of three is being, talk it. a lot about gratitude in the book, but it's important. So many of us are so busy not being grateful everything. They're so focused on the things that they don't have versus the things that they do have. And we don't need like a fancy pool or all that stuff. I mean, just the talk, we were talking about this before, you know, my wife and I came down and you're like, what did you go see in Miami? I'm like, we just sat on the beach with each other. (laughs) Like, that's it. You know, just be, and we could be there just next to each other and grateful. Like I am grateful every day that I have my wife, my family, my kids, and the people that uh, I get to meet like you that are, have the same vision of trying to help people get their health and their quality of life back. I love it, Eric. I'm also grateful for you. You know, the backstory, me and Eric are both sick right now. (laughs) We had scheduled this podcast in person weeks ago, uh, over a month ago. I ended up getting sick this week, not knowing that you were also sick. And I emailed you like, hey, here's the situation. I know you're flying in, but maybe we might want to reschedule. And you're like, oh, me and my wife are sick too. And we decided to reschedule a day later to give us an additional day to recover. And uh, we did an hour plus. And I think we did a great job, even though we're under the weather, man. Great job. Yeah. Well, it went fast, right? It, it went as, fast. As the last podcast went fast. It did. So we'll put all the references down below uh, that we discussed today. Go follow Eric, get his book and subscribe to his YouTube channel and share this with somebody you know, please. Somebody, this is a very important topic. So if you're watching on YouTube, hit the thumbs up button and subscribe. If you're listening to the podcast, share it with somebody you know. So thank you so much, Eric. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I hope you loved that conversation with Eric. He was so much fun. Here's a, you know, we were both sick. <laughs> we both had something. I don't know if it was COVID or, or what it was, but we were both sick recording this episode. So we, he, he got sick the same week I got sick and he had it on his travel plans to come down here from Pennsylvania. So we, we kept the interview and I, I'm glad we did because it was so much fun. Please share the episode with a friend. Go get his book, Thyroid Debacle book. We'll put a link for it down below. His website is rejuvagencenter.com. We'll put that down below. His podcast is the Thyroid's Answer Podcast. And please consider leaving the show rating and review. If you want to watch the video interview with Dr. Eric and myself in person at our studio here at Keto Camp HQ, go to youtube.com slash Keto Camp. Now you understand the thyroid better. Go and improve thyroid function. You're going to feel so much better. Thanks for spending part of your day with Eric and myself. I'll see you on the next episode.
This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.